This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Royal Blue Podcast as we mark the anniversary of one of the most seismic moments in Everton's history. Normally, if we're producing a one-off like this, it would be to mark a major highlight from Everton's past. Be that lifting a trophy or the anniversary of another significant game or perhaps the arrival of a noted player or manager. Today, though, we're reflecting upon the departure of an Everton legend, one of the greatest and most influential players ever to don the Royal Blue jersey throughout the club's history, Alan Ball. On 22nd of December 1971, Ball was sold by Everton manager Harry Catrick to Arsenal for a British record fee of £220,000. For those who recall the sale, it was Goodison Park's very own version of a JFK assassination stroke Neil Armstrong moon landing. <laughs> Two huge global events still fresh in the memory at the time. Where were you when you heard the news type moments? But it resonates for the many Evertonians who were either too young to remember or indeed not even born at the time. Ball himself famously quoted as saying, once Everton's touched you, nothing will ever be the same. But were the Blues fundamentally altered once they made this hugely controversial decision to cash in on their prize asset some 50 years ago? It's a loaded question, and I'm pleased to say we've got an expert panel to try and provide us with some insightful opinions on the matter. First of all, I'd like to welcome our special guest who's kindly taken time out from his duties as the BBC Sports Chief Football Writer to join us, former Liverpool Echo football reporter himself, Mr Phil McNulty. Good morning, Phil. Morning, Chris. Morning, everybody. Yeah. Joining Phil, we have regular Royal Blue podcast guest, Gavin Bucklin, who's Everton's official statistician and, of course, the, the author of uh, the, the new book, uh, Boys from the Blue Stuff. That's a little later on from the, the topic we're discussing today, Gavin Buckland. And the Echo's very own Dave Prentice. I can start with you, Gavin. Seeing as you've covered the subject of Alan Ball's sale in your book, Money Can't Buy Us Love, Everton in the 1960s, which in an Eric Hosborne-esque, long 19th century fashion, extends to the early 1970s and the end of <laughs> Harry Catrick's reign, what was the background to this hugely controversial transfer decision? You got you got five hours, have you, Chris? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, we, we can talk about some more detail. I think nearly the background is the decline of the team after after seventy, after winning the title in nineteen seventy. Um, for for many different reasons, things fell apart, um, as we as we all know. And the team was team was in decline. It was loss of form, injuries, a few people falling out. Harry Catrick, uh, Catrick himself, his powers were on the way. So we get to the end of nineteen seventy one, and you know I think Harry wants to freshen things up a little bit. Mm. And you know, <laughs> no better way of freshening things up a bit by selling the most famous player in the team. In fact, the only. They said the money can't buy us love. The only the only Everton player that was recognised in every household in the country, uh, and it was also, as we say, hopefully talk about it was, it was his own deteriorating relationship with Alan, who was his captain at the time. He'd main captain, which was probably not the best decision. So it was Harry vainly try, trying to do something and and, and um, pull things back again after after the decline of the team, which has taken the best part of two years. Yeah. Phil, just how big a deal was Alan Ball for Everton Football Club and why did he achieve such status? Well, I think if you uh, take Everton from the post-war era, 
uh, and also listen to people who played with him, like Colin Harvey, Howard Kendall. He is the club's greatest post-war player. I don't think anyone would argue with that. Um, he came to Everton a couple of weeks after winning the World Cup with England, so obviously he was a big figure at that time. Scored on his debut at Fulham, scored a couple of goals against Liverpool, I think, on his home debut. So right away, he was this this sort of almost legendary figure instantly. But then, of course, you know, you, you just watched him for the next three or four years when he was absolutely world-class. He used to score 20 goals a season from midfield, and that's a, a point we'll reach later when we talk about why he was sold. His goal record had dropped off. But he was just somebody, you know, the fans saw giving 100% every game. And again, when Gavin talked about him giving the captaincy, and that was a mistake. I do think I agree with that. Um, it was almost to try and get more out of him and calm him down. But you couldn't get any more out of him by giving the captaincy because he just gave it all anyway. But I just think, you know, the contribution he made to the title-winning side, the way he played, the goals he scored, the touch of arrogance he had about himself and how much he loved Everton and the Everton fans, um, I think that's what made him so loved at Everton. And, uh, you know, you have to say, that you know, the red hair and the white boots, the first player ever to wear the white boots, he was symbolic in many ways, really. And I think that's what made it such a, a stunning decision uh, to sell who, somebody who still was the best player in the team and as Gavin said, the, the most recognisable figure at the club and still a regular in the England team. So yeah, it was a, he was, you know, he will, in my opinion, will be regarded unless somebody else comes along. You never know, hopefully, um, in the next few years as, as the, the club's greatest post-war player. Yeah. Following on from that, Dave, I know as, as the elder statesman on the, the Echo Sports desk, you do get a nice cheap, say so. Yeah, from um, some of the, our younger colleagues, you know, they claim you remember Dixie 60th, stuff like that. But you've yeah, told yeah. us before we went on there, it's just, it's just before your football consciousness started, but I'm sure you'll be able to concur on what a special talent Alan Ball was and the bond he enjoyed with Evertonian. Oh, yeah, 100%, because I've seen the way he was actually regarded by other people that I've worked with and have actually, you know, sort of worked at Everson Football Club almost like in reverential terms. Um, mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right about the other greatest post-war footballer. I think you could probably go further and say the second greatest footballer in the club's history uh, and obviously the greatest being Dixie Dean. And uh, the reason I can say something like that, having seen neither of those players in action, is uh, A, you know, the bold statistics about, you know, so what they achieved during their careers. But the way in which they were regarded, and Borley especially, uh, I was fortunate enough to be part of that um, that panel, the Millennium Giants panel, that was uh, mm -hmm. convened in 1999. Uh, it was to celebrate uh, the Millennium, and our, our task was to select one footballer from every decade of the club's history to become a Millennium Giant. Um, and it was like you know seen as being like a real accolade, and it was an incredible panel that had been put together. Uh, you know, so Brian LeBone, Howard Kendall. Uh, I was there as like a, a media representative. Uh, so Philip Carter was in there. I think Bill Kenwright was in there. Uh, there were like all you know people from all different branches of the you know the Everton you know sort of life, if you like, all you know sort of trying to uh, pick one player from each of the uh, decades of, of the club's history. And when it came to the sixties, you can imagine how difficult that was. And bear in mind that you know Alan Ball was only signed in nineteen sixty six, and so effectively only played you know sort of four years of the sixties. But, you know, went round the table. And as you say, I didn't see Borley play. Well, not for Everton. I saw him play for Southampton, uh, you know, so back at Goodison. I saw him play for Arsenal. Uh, but, you know, I started going to the game in 1975. So, you know, I never saw him play in a royal blue shirt. Uh, but we went round the table. So I, I declined to vote on that one, uh, you know, not having sufficient knowledge. But, you know, everybody else pitched in. And the vote went to Alex Young. 
and Howard Kendall was absolutely appalled. Uh, he was he was said to walk out. You know, he was he was literally you know this can't this is wrong this is wrong this can't be right. You know, so mm-hmm. Alan Ball is the greatest player I ever played with, and he was so absolutely adamant that Ball he was the greatest player that you know he'd ever shared a football pitch with. Colin Harvey says exactly the same as well. And you know, we're talking to genuine twenty four characters and legends there. And if they you know so put Ballie on such a pedestal, you can, you know, you got to listen to them and think that yeah, this you know lad really did have something very very special. And you know the fans that you talk to about it. You know the Howard's Way movie. You know it kicks off with you know Alan Paul's departure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does. It's 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 all quite uh, quite quite poignant. But yeah, underlines again what a very very special talent he was. I think in the Howard's Way movie, there's a, there's a, something that it for me confirms how great he was when Colin Harvey. And we know how dedicated, professional, and what a great player Colin Harvey was. He said when Alan Ball came in, he raised the bar up to there, yeah. and he said that's what we had to try and do. And he said. You knew you'd never get there, meaning that was Alan Ball's standards and that was everybody else's. And when Colin Harvey says that, then you know how good somebody is. You know, when Colin's trying hard to get somewhere, saying, Well, I know I'm not going to do it, but I'll try. Um, and I think, as Dave said, he, you, you take it from the players he played with. You know, he was one of the all time great English footballers, not just one of the all time great Everton footballers. Yeah. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Gavin, you suggest in your book that ball sale was perhaps something of an off-the-cuff decision from Catrick, who would regularly deal with inquiries for his prize asset, until that point had always batted them off. Yeah, yeah, it, it's worth um, a quick, quick timeline of events yeah. from um, seventeen. Um, in seventeen, he was appointed captain, and immediately, mm-hmm. I think he was permanently captain. He was he was captain at the end of the tight winning team, and I think the problem was that because the team was sliding. Alan's captaincy became a little bit more corrosive um, with the players and there was various on-field on spats, one of which you can see famously with Keith Newton at Leeds and we got mm. beat 3-2 and then Keith Newton nearly come to blows and have to be split up by uh, Brian LeBone and next game we did it with Howard at Chelsea. Um, so that that thing Phil was saying there, it was raising standards is right, but the problem is is that you know some of the younger players especially were coming through, you know, we became... You know, he could he could upset them because um, they just weren't good enough. And so by the time we get to 70, start of 71, 72, is the whole thing, Alan Ball, starts, the sale starts. We got beat by Sheffield United 1-0 uh, mm. at the start of the season. We started the season dreadfully. And um, in, the, in the dressing room afterwards, uh, Harry walks in and Alan's still in there. And Harry start, uh, Alan starts having a go at Harry. Uh, saying, you know, Jim will boss today, you know, Sheffield United, you know, roll your tongue down that name, you know, they're only a second second division outfit, you <clears> got <throat> beat, you know, what does that mean? And this is in front of the players. And I think Harry, he, was, he, was, he could be, you know, Harry could be quite canny at times, didn't say anything. And the following week, we got beat at West Ham, I think, 1-0. And Harry... In, pointedly in front of the players in the dressing room afterwards said to, said to Alan you didn't try today and that's you know what Phil was saying there about Alan the standards being that high and you always got to do 100% he knew because that was the one thing that would wind Alan up and Ball was seething and on the coach coming home Ball didn't speak to anybody and he was waiting for the uh, waiting for the confrontation at Belfield they got back to Belfield 
And Harry's just about to go into his car. Ball runs over to him and says, you know, nobody ever says that to Alan Ball. Blah, blah, blah. Nearly has to go at Harry. And then next minute, Harry gets his... If a player had to go at Harry, Harry would get his coaching staff to surround the player. <laughs> and so Harry was saying, well, why are you taking it so personally, Alan? You know, and uh, Ball was getting even more even. And uh, it was quite funny, actually, because the players should have driven off by that stage, but they were all sat in their car still, you know, listening yeah. to it with the windows down. And um, and then, it, you know, Alan admitted that he'd had a gro- been carrying a groin injury uh, for a while, which hadn't helped, not told Harry. Uh, then he'd, 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 he'd been out the team, and then Harry wouldn't let him play when Ball said he was fit, uh, which Ball stomped, stomped off from Goodison once, uh, I think before Coventry game. Um, ran out basically in tears because Harry said he wasn't fit to play and then we get to uh, he comes back and he says he's fully fit and then he's poor um, his last goal was in the 8-0 against Southampton wasn't it I think um, in November but he's poor we get to Derby first last uh, Saturday before Christmas 71 and um, team has no shots on target Alan and Howard had a confrontation on the pitch that carried on from the dressing room uh, Harry tells Alan in the dressing room at Derby, not playing against other schools, he dropped. And then uh, on the mon- Monday, um, there'd the, been a major story over the over the weeks that uh, Harry wanted to sell Colin Harvey, £150,000. And Alan was for sale as well. Bertie May always used to phone up Harry and then he phoned up on the Monday. Bertie May and says to Harry, you know, anybody for sale? And I think Harry thought he was phoning up about Colin Harvey. But he was actually, because he was on the phone to him, said, well, you can have Alan Ball if you want. And that's where that's where it, it came from. But, um, yeah, it was, it had been, it was, it was, Alan always said afterwards that it was the confrontation against Sheffield United in the dressing room that that, that started, you know, the, the ball rolling for his departure yeah. uh, from the club. And I think Harry thought he'd been undermined one too, one too many times by his captain. Yeah. Uh, but, but you are right, Chris, that, you know, the time was wrong. You don't tell your best player three days before Christmas, do you? Exactly. <laughs> you know, just, yeah. just yeah. who does that? You know, yeah. the FA Cup was coming up, and the FA Cup third round was massive. You know, nobody sold the players before the FA Cup third round. So um, we did it in two thousand and five with Thomas Gravison. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <with it. laughs> but, but those are the days when you could sell people. You didn't have yeah. transfer windows, Plano. Sure, yeah. And so, yeah. Um, and also, Harry had nobody, nobody to. He didn't have a, a strategy. Yeah. You know, like you sell, you sell this top player, you want to get somebody in. Well, Harry, Harry phones Southampton up, you know, within an hour and I wanted to, you know, um, buy Mick Shannon, but they wouldn't sell him. And so it was, I always say it was a bit of a snap, snap decision. If Harry, Sounds like you've come round to my way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, but, no, whether, uh, whether you should have sold him is one thing. The timing of the sale is another thing, I think, Phil. And yeah. I think, um, it's just you just don't sell you, you know your most important you know still your prize asset. I think what you know. he what he the, the difference was that in the past when he'd sold players, I mean Jimmy Gabriel, we got six I think when Everton sold him. I don't know why, but I have this image of Jimmy Gabriel being like thirty or something when Everton get got rid of him. Um, Jimmy Gabriel was sold, but Howard Kendall came in, didn't he? Yeah, and he'd done this a few times and. You know, he'd sold people like boom, older Evertonians always go on about the sale of Bobby Collins, A, because he left Everton, and B, because he revived Leeds. So it was a double 
edge sword that one. And but he was able to bring in class players to replace those he'd sold. When he sold Alan Ball, there was nobody he could bring in to replace him. Uh, a as a replacement for Alan Ball, but B for some reason clubs seem to be at that stage a bit more reluctant to accept any money that Everton were throwing at them. So as Gav says, you can go to Southampton uh, and he wasn't even buying like for like really, was he? He was trying to buy a striker, no. Mick Shannon, you know, and I, I don't know whether they offered, it was a lot of money, wasn't it, Gav? I think it was two or 300,000 pounds. Yeah, he offered, he offered the and entire... Southampton, Southampton just said no. And I think, again, there was something like, you know, that Trevor Francis was around at the time, but Birmingham wouldn't yeah. sell him. It was Wonderboy, all that sort of thing. So basically what he did was he sold the club's best player and was then unable to replace him with anything like him. At the start of the following season, the player who inherited the number eight jersey was Mike Bernard, who, A, is absolutely or was absolutely nothing like Alan Ball as a footballer. Mike Bernard was a destroyer. Bit, quite, had, had a bit of skill, but basically he was a midfield destroyer who ended up playing right back for Everton. Um, so he wasn't a creator. And with the best will in the world, and you know, nothing against Mike Bernard, you know, he was a player who, and he'd say it himself, he couldn't hold a candle to Alan Ball. Uh, so you had this great player removed from the team. And, you know, obviously there are reasons why and Gav explained them. But there was no strategy at all to replace him. So you'd, if you're going to sell him, and obviously I, my own personal opinion is, is it, it was a terrible error, you at least then have some sort of strategy to bring somebody in to replace him. He sold him, um, as Gavin said, just before Christmas, obviously... Loads of families' Christmases were ruined for a start. But the, the FA Cup's coming up. The team was a bit on the slab. There was nobody to replace him. Um, and clubs were not willing sellers. So I think that added to you know the, the fact that it was a mistake at that time, certainly, to sell him. I think as the middleman in this uh, in this debate, <laughs> should we say, I mean, that was going to be my, my point, to get away with a, a deal as seismic as that. You've got to have a strategy and a replacement in line and you look at you know some of the other big deals of you know sort of that era Liverpool did it perfectly you know when they sold Kevin Keegan who was like you know yeah. European football of the year elect and replaced him with Kenny Dalgleish you know so when they um when, when they moved to that when Sunes wanted to go on to, to Sampdoria I think Jan Mulby came in as his replacement uh you know again you know so absolutely great footballer so you've got to replace or Torres, attempt, Torres and Suarez is another one. Exactly, yeah. You've, you've got to attempt to replace, you know, sort of like with like or quality with quality. And uh, I saw a lot of Mike Bernard play. And I think it's fair to say that, yes, he couldn't hold the candle to, uh, to Alan Ball. Yeah. Well, well he tried to, it's, Harry tried to sign Mike Bernard as well um, when he sold Ball. But they were in the middle of that epic League Cup semi-final, the Stoke West Ham. Um, um, League Cup's famous one that went to, to, to four matches and yeah. Bobby Moore saved Mike Bernard's penalty at Old Trafford, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, uh, isn't some sort of, this isn't some sort of attack on Mike Bernard. Mike Bernard it's just merely you know, you know, stressing that, you know, I, I think that, Ball with Mike Bernard yeah. is, is not the wisest thing a manager would ever do. Yeah. I, I, and I think that's the whole crux of the, the Alan Ball sale. I mean, you could, you could have, you don't, how, sorry, Howard, probably just that Paddy had started to buy Artie Gemmell, you know, where uh, the previous year. And yeah, Paddy buys set the summer of 72. I mean, we need to, to, the other key thing is obviously Harry's illness at the start of 72 is you could have had an Everton team like Martin Buchan in, Trevor Francis, hmm. and you know, top, you know, the both Artie Gemmell, top, top quality players who the fans would have taken to. 
Um, but he, he ended up with players who were, you know, he had both Henry Newton though, hadn't he, Gavin? Henry Newton yeah, basically he, spent most of his Everton career playing at left back and lots of back, people yeah, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. Newton to get back at Clough, to yeah, and get off him because Clough was desperate to sign Henry Newton. And yeah, Patrick, exactly. Patrick said, Well, you're not going to do that to me twice. And he signed Henry Newton, who played at left back most of the time, yeah, yeah. And then Clough tried to buy him back. So I think that's the other thing is Harry's powers of management and his thinking. He'd done 20 years. At, 20 years as a manager were maybe not, you know, not as clear as what he'd, um, you know, once been. And obviously being ill the year before himself in the in the week of the semi-final against Liverpool. And um, I think it's, it's a whole concoction of factors, I think, that, you know, plays in here. But I do think if he'd have gone out since Mick Shannon had turned up, you know, a week later, it was highly coveted. That would have helped uh, dull the pain. But it was the wider decline of the team, didn't didn't know the echo, the, on the story they sold him, and I, I look back at this. Um, the first player that they linked Everton with um, in the echo that day, I think there were a couple of mentions of people, but one name that was really strong as somebody coming in was Dave Thomas. Yeah, he's a very young wing. I mean, so why would you why would you try and sign him having sold Alan Ball? I mean, obviously Johnny Morrissey was starting to suffer with injury problems. Yeah, but again, it just shows a lack of sort of structured thinking, doesn't it? You yeah. know, it's as you say, maybe his judgment. Had started to go at that point. Yeah, I, I just think it was a snap decision. I think what happened at Derby. I think he just become fed up with them. To be honest, with you, wanted them of the club. Yeah. Howard tells the story, doesn't he, in his yeah. book about. Um... There was a there was a training session at Belfield, and he said Harry Patrick very rarely appeared. They used to just see the blinds twitch, didn't they, in his office? Yeah. And um, Alan Ball turned around and said to Wilf Dixon or whoever the assistant was at the time, "How can I play with this lot?" And waved his arm airily towards all these outstanding players basically and uh, Howard said he felt that almost as soon as Patrick saw that incident on the training ground he went back into his office and thought he's going um, because you can't have and again this plays into the captaincy and the corrosive nature of his his, his sort of tongue apart from anything else um, and it's something that failed him as a manager wasn't it? he couldn't understand why players weren't like him yeah Patrick immediately went back to his office and thought right next person on the phone He's going. It might have been Bertie Me, I suppose. Yeah, well, that's uh, the, the final thing about the, the snap decision is why did he sell him to Arsenal? I mean, if you'd have put ball off the sale properly, you could have got a lot more than 220,000. I mean, mm. Liverpool, Bill Sankey said he was gutted. <laughs> that was about whether he sold him for nothing. But I think the other thing why Harry wanted to sell him was he'd known that Alan Ball's father was always at Old Trafford on match days trying to flog. His son to Man United because <laughs> I think Alan wanted to go to Man United and, and Catrick knew that and he felt that was up further undermining him. Um, and that was that was another factor. But of course, Ball, as I say in the book, Ball wanted really to play for Manchester City. First thing he did when Catrick said he was going to sell him, he pulled Malcolm Allison up and said, You know, do you want to buy me? And Allison, Allison said that, you know, you know, I'd have made you the best midfield player in Europe, but we can't afford you. You know, go to Arsenal for all the cash. So there was, there was, there was a, quite a few things. If you, if you look at it, it's not really surprised that it was sold because you just, the, the relationship was just falling apart with Harry and also ball on the pitch was not as effective as what he'd been in in in, in the in the sixties. Because you've spoken about this panel, haven't you, before about ball reinventing himself? Yeah. In well, in, again, in the early seventies. Yeah, I, I saw you know the the, the ball mark too, if you like. That you know was effectively more of a, a holding midfield player. I mean, the big match we visited, which I watched diligently every single week, and you see lots and lots of uh, clips of him there. 
And uh, yeah, you know, clearly his ability to get from box to box and, you know, sort of score 20 goals a season had gone. But that didn't matter because, you know, so he reinvented himself as a different type of midfielder who was able to, you know, sort of knit things together from a deeper position and still be just as effective. I mean, as Phil mentioned earlier, he still kept his place in the England side. And this was at an era when Alf Ramsey, I know he was fiercely loyal to his players, but he was also a ruthless manager. Uh, Don Revy, when he came in, uh, you know, so he was still selected on board. So he was still good enough. Uh, to play for his country, you know, so up until 75, 76, was it? Mm-hmm. Which was like, you know, so four or five years after Everton had sold him. So, yeah, you know, maybe Harry didn't quite, you know, so sort of get that development, you know, so maybe he'd been, thought he'd seen the best of him, you know, so he thought he'd had the best years and that was it. He was on a downward slide and therefore it was a good time to sell. And a lot of managers do that. I mean, Alex Ferguson made a career out of, you know, selling at just the right time at Old Trafford. But you've got to get it right, and uh, you know it's first. You've got to have the replacements, haven't you? That's the thing. Yeah, exactly. The argument is that you make. You can't just sell them. Alex Ferguson wouldn't have wouldn't have been successful if you sold all those players and not had people to bring in. And I think that's the key to the whole thing. I think the the Mexico World Cup was a big uh, factor as well, wasn't it? I think Um, because Patrick always. I mean, he was paranoid about the players going to the Mexico World Cup anyway, because it was almost like this strange land they were off to, where they play at altitude and they'd be knackered when they came back and particularly a player of Alan Ball's sort of perpetual motion style would would be badly affected by it. And I think he blamed the Mexico World Cup for Ball having to make that transformation from a player who was perpetual motion to somebody who had to, as you said, Dave, tailor his game to, to, to become something else, if you like. Yeah. Uh, because, of course, that Mexico World Cup, Brian Labone didn't play much after that, did he? Um, when he got back, I mean, that's another problem. At that time, leaders in the team, the experienced players in the team, like Brian Labone, got an injury which finished him. Johnny Morrissey was picking up injuries which finished him. So other influential players with big personalities in the team were also coming to the end as well. So the choice is, do you, you know, do you keep this player you have got a difficult relationship with or do you, do you ship him out? I mean, really maybe Catrick, if he was a, if he was the manager he used to be, would have managed that situation. But he, he obviously decided the ball had become too much for him. But in my opinion, still, particularly because of the lack of a replacement, the timing, the state of the team when he sold him uh, was a catastrophic error, which, you know, in the end cost Everton for many years, I think. Yeah, I, I think the final final thing, on, just to add what, uh, to, to what Phil and Pano say there, that the final thing about Ball with Everton when he was playing that line, playing deep at, which he started doing for England, I, I said that in the book, didn't I, that Brian James, who was working for the time, Sunday Times, had said that he'd done an analysis of him playing for England, in the early 70s compared to the 60s. And he found that in the mid-60s, he was getting into the box all the time playing for England. In the early 70s, he was playing, he was playing basically a defensive midfielder with, with Peter Story and Emlyn Hughes. And, and that was what was happening at Goodison. And I think Katzik got on to the fact that, well, balance off and back, if that's where he wants to play, I've already got Colin Harvey and Howard Kendall who can collectively pass the ball better and a better tackle than what Alan is. Hadn't his dad and, told him he needed to play more like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's right. So I think Harry thought, well, hang on a minute. I can't have three playing deep. And I think that also helped sort of accelerate the, the sale. Um, it, was, it was where Ball wanted to play. And it's bit, I, I say in the book, it was a bit like Wayne Rooney after Ferguson left, where he, he just ran. If it wasn't working in one part of the pitch, he'd go and play in another. And I think that's, uh, that, that, that's what was happening to Alan. I think by, by the time he gets to... The seventy-one certainly that he, he the powers had waned. He's still a good player, but where he wanted to play, had he had top-class players still playing in, in that, that part of the pitch, 
So he was expendable, I think, to a degree. Um, but I can only say what the, the guys are saying. It, it's the lack of strategy, isn't it? The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. It's quite interesting, before we came on, I had a little look at the Echo on the day he was sold. And Michael Charters, who was the Echo's sort of legendary writer, uh, said, I think the majority of Goodison fans will support manager Harry Catrick's decision to let Alan Ball go. I'm not quite sure what, what angle Michael was coming at from it there. We could say, what, uh, but I mean, I'm not quite sure he was proved correct in that because, I mean, there's a, there's a Vox Pop attached to it. Yeah. And there's a couple of quotes in there. Let's say what people would, what should happen to Harry Catrick that put this really wouldn't get in the echo today, what they wanted them to. Really? <laughs> and, um, and um, you know, it was, you know, as, as Chris went in his intro said, it was a seismic decision. And the other thing was, it did come, I know there would be little snippets about, but it just came completely out of the blue, didn't it? It wasn't like now where you'd have a few days of speculation on social media and everyone would be all over it 24 hours. This was like you woke up one morning, bang, he was gone. So that added to the, the shock of it, really, as well. Um, mm. and, and again, maybe that plays into Gavin's theory that it was a snap decision. Yeah. And you do wonder if you'd have asked Patrick six months later, you know, what did you think he made the made the right decision there? Whether he'd have said yes, knowing Harry Patrick, he probably would have said yes. But you know, I, I'm sure deep down, it, it should be something he, he lived to regret, really. I, I think I think you're right there. I think I mean I think we also need to play in here. There's a, there's a couple of other factors. Is that this is just the, the, the ball's first game at Highbury, New Year's Day, 1972 against Everton makes his home debut, doesn't he, against Everton, which and, and Howard, uh, Howard captained the team, um, and Howard scored a great goal, didn't he? Um, and then um, the the other thing as well is. We get to the first week in January 72 and Harry has his heart attack or whatever it is driving back from, from Hillsborough, doesn't he? Which means that the money that he's got for ball and, and, and the money he had available for transfers that he couldn't use and the, 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 the club was, was sliding into chaos off the pitch as well. There was poor leadership, I think, in the um, in the boardroom because Moores had obviously, you know, his influence direct influence had sort of uh, diminished and we had we had people in the boardroom perhaps who were just as nominees and so there were some some issues there but we had it I, I mean I don't know I I remember my dad going back to the start I can remember there was I remember my dad coming in and telling us you know my dad was just unbelievably shocked <laughs> you know he's just I could I could the old house I could tell you where it was standing when my dad told me you know it was just just unbelievable but it was um did you say that yeah. thing there, Dad? Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah. You wouldn't think fifty years later you'd be talking about it still, but yeah. it is. It's still, still a seismic moment. But I think it was it was ill thought out by Catrick. I think you're right, Dad. If he if he said I'm going to sell ball at the end of the season after the after he had the argument against Sheffield United and then worked out the strategy of what players to buy made a few inquiries, I think that would have been acceptable. But it was just a snap decision. You don't sell your best player three days before Christmas. Yeah. Um, and then he had, then he couldn't do anything from January because he was ill. And then, um, you know, by then, you know, it'd gone, hadn't it? Had interesting comments. I think, I think Michael Charles has had had his hair, didn't he, or vice versa, mm-hmm. I think. And you look at, I think uh, it could be a voice piece for Harry, I think, sometimes. The but... piece I read sound, does sound like it was dictated to him by Harry. Yeah. 
I was just going to say, um, Phil, given given the the drop off in balls numbers, Phil, and obviously the, the, what we said about the temperament, the amount raised for him, subsequent relative lack of success at Arsenal, I believe it was just the one runners up medal in, in the FA Cup. Is there any way Catterick's decision can be vindicated in your eyes? I think you're probably asking the wrong person here because I, yeah. I, I just, I've always just felt it was a terrible mistake. But and yeah. also, funnily enough, he might have just joined an Arsenal team that was was going over the top itself. You know, it won the double. They got he got to the FA Cup the first season. Who's there? They lost one in seventy two, and they lost to Leeds. Then they lost one 0 to Leeds. And also, I think the Arsenal team and one or two. I've read pieces from old Arsenal players saying that basically Alan Ball changed the whole face of that team because they played in a certain way. Uh, but of course, as soon as Alan came into the team, he wanted the ball all the time. He wanted everything to go through him. And he didn't really fit the Arsenal team. And while I get the bit about the numbers and everything like that, um, and he was a player who was able to change his game. As Dave said, when he saw him with Southampton, he was this it's almost old head, if you like, wasn't he dictating the game from deeper and stuff like that? Um, I personally, uh, unless the, the relationship was utterly irretrievable, which Gavin seems to suggest it was. I don't see any way you could look back at that and say it was it was a good move. I mean, you just look at Everton's record after it. I mean, I suppose he, Billy Bingham tried to replace him a little bit with Martin Dobson, who cost 300,000 straight cash, wasn't it, in 74? Um, but to me, they sold their best player. They were not able to replace him. And if Ball was struggling with his fitness and or something like that, maybe Catrick could have said to him, look, Alan, just have two or three weeks off where the ball would have taken kindly to being told to go away, have a holiday, Alan, and you know, get yourself fit and ready and, and come back refreshed and we'll, we'll we'll try it again. But it seems to me, as Gavin has said, it was almost like a spur of the moment. I've had enough of this fella. I'm chucking him out. And it was sort of uh, act in haste, repent at leisure, as they say. You know, he, they had years and years of you know, players playing for the club who were not fit to lace his boots, in my, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, it's it's that if you sell a player, as Dave said earlier, if you sell a player, have that, you must have a strategy. You must have a replacement. You know, Liverpool have been masters at it. There were two classic examples. Well, the perfect example is the one Dave gave, which was Ke- Keegan, which at the time was like, oh my, horrendous. Kevin Keegan's going, what's going to happen? Smooth as you like, Keegan out of one door, Dalglish in the other, life goes on. Not even like it was before, even better than before. Um, but Everton didn't have, didn't have a, a, I'm not sure Patrick had a clue what he was going to do other than ring Southampton, a couple of clubs on the off chance they might sell him their best players. That didn't happen. So so that was it then. But it goes back to what Dave said. It's that strategy of, you know, who's replacing them. Um, but to answer your question, Chris, I yeah. personally, unless... The relationship was irretrievable, as in absolutely irretrievable. Um, then there's no justification for selling him. And in reality, the manager was on the way in anyway. Um, so maybe in time he would have gone. But Everton were fairly, despite the reputation, they, they showed Catrick a great deal of faith before they finally moved him on. But as Dave said, you've got to have that replacement. Everton didn't. So in my opinion, there was no upside at all to, to the decision to sell on board. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, right. Okay, we'll we'll cut to the chase. And I'll ask you all three of you the same question in, in, in a couple of minutes. Um, um, I want to hear more from Dave. We've just yeah, talked over yeah, for well, thirty-five well, minutes. 
Dave can go first on this one then. Um, okay, at the time of ball sale in 1971, Everton held the record for the most league championships in English football. It was seven and a four-way tie with Arsenal, who they sold him to, Liverpool and Manchester United. In the half a century since, Manchester United won a further 13 titles, Liverpool 12, Arsenal 5, and Chelsea and Manchester City also 5. Everton in the same period have won two, which is the same as Derby County over the same period. I'll ask you all the same question now. Does the sale of Allen Ball represent the beginning of end, beginning of the end of Everton being a major force in English football? Dave? No, absolutely not. Uh, because, you know, they became a major force in English football. Admittedly, some time later, a decade later, if you're going to look at, you know, sort of sliding doors moments and um, when, um, you know, so Everton did begin to slide from the position that they held in English football, I think you need to look, you know, sort of more closely to the uh, the late 80s, uh, mm. from the 87, Howard's departure onwards. And you could argue about um, the recruitment of other midfield players and thinking of the likes of Mike Milligan and Hanko, <laughs> uh, you know, so attempting to replace the likes of Pisa Reid. Um, so, no, that I mean, at that occasion, when Everton had won their ninth league title, I think it was, you know, so they were still uh, one clear of Manchester United on the same as Arsenal. Maybe Arsenal had one more, uh, but were still, you know, very much on level terms, you know, so with clubs of that stature. And from that period is when it all went horribly pear-shaped. I mean, I'll take the argument that, yes, it certainly took some time to recover uh, from, you know, sort of the 1970s demise, uh, but that wasn't entirely down to Alan Ball's departure. That was a contributory factor, clearly. Uh, but there were lots of other elements. I mean, notably Harry Catterick's illness. As Phil mentioned earlier, so many influential players who either were injured or had lost form in Brian LeBone. You know, his career ended, you know, so shortly after that. Tommy Wright was another one who, you know, so only played mm. a handful of times, you know, so in the early 70s before injury ended his career as well. So they were having to start from scratch all over again. And, um, I mean, I'm reading Gav's book at the moment and thoroughly enjoying it. I mean, it is my era. You know, so I'm only about five or six chapters in. But, you know, you look at some of the players that Billy Bingham was recruiting and like such a, a mismatch, you know, so some very, very good footballers, uh, but equally some that, you know, so just didn't quite, you know, sort of fit the bill at all. And uh, it was, it, it, it took a while. I mean, there was that 74-75 season where Everton could have been champions three years after Alan Ball had left or four years after Alan Ball mm -hmm. had left. Would that have vindicated the decision? No, I think not, because that was like, probably as Gav quite rightly describes, one of the worst, you know, sort of, you know, title chasers in, in living memory. Uh, you know, so Derby effectively won it by default. Uh, you know, so Everson could have won with one of the, you know, one of the poorest title winning sides I think that we'd ever have had if that was the case. So to answer the question, no, uh, Alan Ball's departure didn't result in us losing our position, uh, you know, at the, the top table of English football, if you like. But it certainly resulted in taking some time to get back up there again. So if that, if that answers the question, you know, there you go. Okay. <laughs> Who wants to go next? Gav, do you want to I'll, go next? I'll, I'll go next if you like. Phil, yeah. Gav can finish off because he's I've written the book on it, literally. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd agree with Dave. I don't think it was the beginning of the end because mm -hmm. irrespective of the quality of the, the opposition and the, and the title race itself, Everson should have won the league in, in 74, 75. If Bingham had spent money on a goalkeeper rather than stick with Di Davis and David Lawson, Everton probably would have won the league. If they'd won a couple of games against Carlisle, who got relegated, they would have won the league. So I don't think it was the beginning of the end. And as, and as they pointed out, in the mid-80s, they did return to that preeminent position. But I think it did a lot of damage, along with a lot of other things. I think even Colin Harvey 
uh, was such a great player. But even around that time, he was starting to struggle because he'd had a hip problem and um, various other things. So he, he was still an outstanding player, but not quite the, maybe the player he was. So there's this group of great players who were starting to slide. Um, and you can't say it was the beginning of the end because it wasn't the end, was it? They, they came back and they won trophies in, in the mid-80s and, and, you know, things came around again. They won in the FA Cup in 95. But I do think it was a mistake to sell him. I do think it set the club back. And I think it made the journey back to where they wanted to be, which was champions or at least challenging for champions championships a lot longer. Of course, you wouldn't go, you could even mention the 77-78 season, which was an outstanding season yeah. uh, for Everton, where they I mean they they chased quite a long way into that tight into that season, into that title race, came up short, but played some fantastic football under Gordon Lee, which is often forget forgotten by a lot of people. Um, so it certainly wasn't the beginning and the end, but I think it made the journey back to where they wanted to be a lot longer. And the last word to Gav then. Uh, if you if you ever look at my Twitter timeline, half my tweets have ever sent have been to Phil about the sale of Alan Ball. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you've, and today you've agreed with me, Gavin. Yeah, no, no, I, I, no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll have, I just, I, I say in the book, I'm, I say, yeah, should have sold him. Yeah, absolutely, because the, the relationship had deteriorated. Football's close of impact on the dressing room, and that he wasn't the player that Harry Patrick thought. Um, in fact, he was in, in his role that he was playing, he was burnt out. But Brian the Bone told the local journalist, Tony Stevens, who used to work for the Liverpool Weekly News, that he told him in the, in the late 60s that ball would be burnt out in three years' time, which is right. So, I've not got a problem selling on that basis. The two caveats to that. And this way of meeting you sort of halfway here, Phil, is that <laughs> I think there was no strategy to, to, to selling them, as we say, and that, that was the, the first problem. Uh, and the, the second thing is, I, I, I say saying money can't buy us love that. Actually, Kasich was selling the family silver, wasn't he? You know, and selling on ball the player, yes, selling on ball the Everton icon, the most recognisable Everton player by a million miles. Was 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 on such a you know ad hoc basis was was a mistake. So um, there's, there's sort of two answers there. Regarding whether I do I do argue that football in the early seventies that was peak. You know, with the sixties, sixty-six World Cup, massively popular. Sell on ball then. You know, we we just diminished our brand completely. And although we were successful in the mid eighties, football in the mid eighties was a different beast to what it was. In the early seventies, it was they had the hooliganism, they had the economic downturn. Cows were only like just over half they being in the early seventies. So though we were though we were successful then, we weren't didn't have the impact as a club as what it would have been in the in the early seventies. So in that context, I say that in terms of diminishing the brand, the, the sale of ball was massive, uh, and I don't think we've ever recovered that. Um, but yeah, to sell them, yeah. But it was it's just the Catholics lack of strategy, I think. Um, and I think I think there was it. I said in the book, didn't I, that I think he cheated Alan with a certain amount of contempt. Had he, the way he sold him, just pulled him into the room. By the way, I'm selling it to Arsenal. You know, yeah. it's hard to imagine people like Howard Kendall and Joe Rowe being dealt with like that, is it? You know, I think yeah. Catholic was it was a it was a case of I say in the book, it's revenge is a dish best served cold, isn't it? Mm. And I think. Catholic's ego got in the way a little bit, uh, and um, 
it, it's still 50 years on, we're still talking about it, aren't we? It is, it is yeah. as you say, quite rightly, Chris, at the start. It's, the, it's Everton's JFK moments, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, it still is 50 years on. It, it's just got the picture of him with looking into the middle distance with the was it the, the boots around the shoulders and Goodison's yeah. yeah yeah and it's, I just, it's like a Stephen Shakespeare special that one doesn't it yeah. go on Alan you just pose on the pitch for us <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's just it's just um, it's still a, a massive moment in our history mm-hmm. that you can you know the tremors from it I, I think is still being felt today. I mean, he tried the trick with the captaincy that he did with Roy Vernon, didn't he? Yeah, pick out a difficult character. And thought I'll try and tame this guy by making him captain, and he, he tried it again uh, with Alan Ball, as you say, initially on a temporary basis towards the end of that season when when Brian LeBone was injured, and then full time, and it, it just that yeah. was that was a mistake as well. Yeah, and so I think Harry Harry contributed to it. It wasn't all just Alan's failings. Harry Harry was, you know, yeah. So we talk about his decline in management skills and stuff like that. Harry. Had he also contributed enormously to, to the fallout from it. Okay. Well, there we go. But the fact, I think, like we said, the fact we're still talking about it 50 years on is, is the proof in the pudding. But we, it was all very cordial there. So thank you, mm-hmm. gentlemen, and uh, Merry Christmas to you all. And uh, hopefully, um, our listeners and our viewers will enjoy this one. This has been a very special Royal Blue podcast. You've been listening to the Royal Blue podcast from the Liverpool Echo.